The book of Zechariah, and I want us to make sure we have a firm footing of where we are. And I know, I know, especially um, that history is something that we struggle with. The actual concept of history, you know, we just hear dates and uh, try to make that come alive this morning, and just understanding how uh, how history is. is is not just relevant for where we are today, but we it's you know it's kind of follows that age old adage: those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. You know, I mean we we need to recognize the struggles and trials and errors that previous generations um, have faced. Previous generations, as in our fathers, mothers, grandfathers, and grandmothers, but then previous generations, as in the people of Israel and uh, those who've lived on earth at the time, and so. That's why it's important for us just to just to understand these people's lives as much as possible. Uh, that's not a fun exercise for people because people uh, think, "Well, my life's busy enough as it is. I really don't have time to understand somebody else's life." Um, but I think it's helpful for us because, you know, just just to give a personal example of this, uh, I, I give a, I give you a couple of, of examples. The, the fact that God dealt patiently with Israel's struggles for 500 years, as grievous and as horrible and as ugly as their sin was, the fact that God's patience endured and that He didn't just... Uh, I mean, the, the exile didn't come immediately. You know, when, we're, when we are struggling or when we are having a, a trial in our lives or maybe when we are uh, going through a season where uh, we really need people to be uh, uh, patient with us or maybe we're doubting God's patience with us, it's really helpful to know that God, God doesn't just say He's long-suffering, but He exemplifies uh, that long-suffering as well and that steadfastness as well. You can look at the book of Hosea and you, you think about those, those different examples of of God uh, in that way. And the Old Testament helps us grasp the, the, the daily, monthly, and yearly reality of His character and His patience for us. Uh, but then I know uh, when we were studying one time, I think we were studying in the book of Colossians uh, a couple years ago, and we were talking about Paul, that after he came to know Jesus, that he actually stayed in his hometown for four years and ministered there before he ever left and went and, and went on these missionary journeys. And just that, that really does hit home the point that, that where we are, where God has planted us, is the most important place for right now. That we, yes, we should be concerned, especially now that we, I mean, like Paul, we've got the gospel and we want to take it to the nations, but the reality is, is that you can, you can take the gospel to the nations all you want and fail to minister to your hometown, and you're a hypocrite. And, and so we, we, want to, uh, we want to understand the lives the, of, the, of the people in the Bible because humanity has not changed, folks. <laughs> the, the same problems, uh, the same temptations, the same struggles uh, that people have had for years and years and years, you can look to the Word of God and try to understand these people's lives and find encouragement. And so that's why we are breaking down things like timelines and trying to understand when this remnant came back to Jerusalem just to, just to grasp how God operates with people who are in process. And I hope that encourages you tonight. 
And so we mentioned this morning, and, uh, and if you've got some empty space in your Bible, this is not, it's not a bad thing to write in your Bible, but um, you can write it on the back of your sheet or on your, uh, your bulletin in your little sermon notes section. So 536 B.C. is the first date to remember. 536 was the date that uh, the Edict of Cyrus that we saw this morning, this stone cylinder that Cyrus uh, declared that the Israelites could go back and Zerubbabel returns with that first remnant. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra deals with Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, the priest. And so 536 is the first date. Well, 16 years later, in 520 B.C., that's when we saw this morning that Haggai uh, was called by God to prophesy, to challenge this dormant remnant uh, to obey and rebuild the temple. And that their obedience was a declaration of satisfaction uh, with the Lord's calling. And so 536 was when they went back. 520 was when Haggai rose up. And between 520 and 516 is when Zechariah began to prophesy. So somewhere around that same time, as Haggai is prophesying and the people are wrestling with Haggai's prophecies, they, uh, they, they are challenged uh, by Zechariah. And in 516, the temple was completed, at least in, its, in some of its parts. And, uh, and then a lot, there's another period of people going dormant for about 13 years, 458 B.C. to 445 B.C. And, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, 516 B.C. when, when uh, the temple was completed to 458 B.C. when Ezra returned. So Ezra doesn't show up until halfway through his own book. And that's in 458 B.C., then 13 years later, 13 years later in 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns. You remember uh, Ezra was, was coming back to restore the religious purity of the temple worship. And then Nehemiah was coming back to build the what? Rebuild the what? The wall. That's right. And so um, Ezra was concerned with this religious reformation. Nehemiah was concerned with the geographical security or the, uh, the, uh, the security of the people of Jerusalem. And then uh, a lot of people don't realize, because where does the book of Esther fit in there? Well, you see, not all the Jewish people came back. There were some Jews who just chose voluntarily to remain in place. Esther and Mordecai, that's, what, that's, that's who they were. They just chose to remain uh, there in, uh, in that place. And as they chose to remain, God did that work that we'll study. And then between 445 and 430... Malachi prophesies to a new generation of Israel. And then from 430 to 30 B.C., there's silence, which means that there are no prophets. Malachi is the last prophet who speaks God's word to his people. And it's in that time, what's known as the apocryphal period. The, if, if you've ever had a, one of those big family Bibles that's got the apocrypha in it, uh, then you open up to like uh, the book of Esdras and Maccabees and... Um, Catholic, uh, uh, Catholic Bibles traditionally had that section in there, uh, but for some reason the Jews, they didn't want that section in there. Uh, and so the Apocrypha is a chronicle of those 400 years of silence. And uh, all kinds of interesting things happened to the people of Israel during that time, very, very interesting things. Uh, as they eventually come under Roman oppression, because in 30 B.C., or somewhere around there, that's when Jesus is born. 
And so we're getting really, really close to this, uh, the end of the Old Testament, and we're getting really close to uh, the time of Jesus relatively from where we've been. And so we want to understand uh, why Zechariah was called upon to prophesy. Haggai's prophecies brought revival to the remnant in Jerusalem, but work still needed to be done and transformation still needed to happen. So I know I told you to turn to uh, Zechariah, but hold your, uh, hold your finger there and turn to the book of Ezra. Uh, it's going to be a long way to the left because Ezra is back um, in the uh, past Psalms and uh, in, the, in the history section. Uh, and so uh, Ezra chapter 4, Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to see kind of what's happening that would bring, bring Zechariah to the forefront. So Haggai's prophecies uh, brought revival. Zechariah was a young man when he came from Babylon back to uh, Jerusalem. And he heard Haggai prophesy and saw some of the obedience, some of the temple rebuilding uh, begin. And then let's look at what happens in Ezra chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. It says, And I made a decree, this is, uh, this is the king speaking, King Darius, uh, I'm sorry, uh, King Artaxerxes. Verse 19, And I made a decree, and a search has been made, and it has been found that this city, that's Jerusalem, from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled, uh, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men uh, be made to cease, and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is, is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. And then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now look at Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied of the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, of the God of Israel, who was over them. And so it's in this interim period when the king had ordered the work to cease that God raised up these two voices uh, crying out to the people, calling them to be obedient. Haggai called them, as we saw this morning, to avoid the temptations that we talked about, these temptations of a misplaced hope, these temptations of ignoring obedience, this temptation of, um, of having a, a, a comparison on your mind, uh, this temptation of having uh, misplaced or, or disordered priorities. And those temptations he wants us to be aware of. And so as these people are wrestling with life in, uh, in Jerusalem, it's hard. And it seems like none of God's promises are going to come true. And Zechariah is writing to address that reality. And so I think we can all come to the point tonight where we just agree on this, on this reality. Life is hard. And sometimes it doesn't seem like God's promises are working in our favor. And if that's the case for any of you in here, or has been, or I, I can promise you it will be, this book is for you because it shows you that, that last thing that Haggai showed us about having this misplaced hope, it shows us where Zechariah pointed the people to to find true hope. 
And so, look at Zechariah chapter 1, and we'll begin our journey through this book. And like I said, it's a very interesting book, to say the least. And so, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4, this is the call of Zechariah, this call to return. And that's, what we're gonna, that's how we're going to break this up tonight, is there's going to be four words that characterize Zechariah's messages, and uh, kind of the four words that outline his book. And the first word is return. Return. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Meaning there's an urgency when you hear the word of God. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded to my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts uh, purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so, so he has dealt with us. So repent, because the Lord's faithful. That's Zechariah's call. Is his, the, the summary of his message, to repent. God wants to restore the glory of Israel. But it won't happen unless you repent. And this is where we get one of those really, really awesome... Um, uh, declarations about an issue that's a really touchy subject in the church, just in our day and age, especially in America where we're very autonomous, uh, we're very individualistic, we, we, uh, we, we, we like the idea of self-determination, uh, we, we, want, we, we want our, uh, our success and failure to, to rely solely upon us. And what Zechariah's message is addressing from the very beginning, this idea of, of, of repentance and this, it seems like this condition of if you repent, this will happen. If you don't repent, it won't happen. We see in here God's sovereignty and human responsibility going hand in hand. Now, what do we know about God's purposes throughout the entire Old Testament? How long was the exile going to last? Who remembers from this morning? How many years? Andy, you're sitting on the answer, I can tell. 70 years, that's right. The exile was going to last 70 years. Did that have anything to do with Israel? I mean, did Israel have in any way, shape, or form influence on like that 70-year period? And they're going and they're knocking on Cyrus's door saying, hey, can we go back to Israel? No, they didn't have anything to do with it. God has purposed to bring his people back for the restoration of Israel. God has promised, I mean, we've seen it over and over and over and week after week after week. God's promised, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to rebel. I'm going to send you into exile. Then Babylon's going to be conquered. And then you're going to come back. And you're going to do this. And the Messiah's going to come. And this and this and this. And God just has this very clear picture of how it's all going to work. That's what we understand is God's sovereignty. God knows everything. God is in control. And yet, and this is where we don't like this, because we want to just have it all figured out and everything fits in its nice, neat little box. Yet, Zechariah looks at these people and says, but if you don't repent, it's not going to happen. And notice the Bible really has no qualms with just saying both of those. And so I don't think we should either. Like, I have no conflict within my spirit at all to say that God is absolutely sovereign. That just like Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you're good and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is going to do what God is going to do. And yet, He has chosen to work through His human creatures. He is calling his people to be involved. We are his chosen instrument. And if we don't respond, will it happen? 
I mean, think about think about Romans chapter ten taking the gospel to the nations, right? How will they hear without someone preaching to them? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Church, you've got to rise up and do your job because if you don't do your job, then world evangelization is not going to happen. But then look all the way back in Luke chapter 24 and what do we find? We find Jesus saying that these things are going to happen and then the end will come. Jesus has absolutely no question about whether or not it's going to happen. And yet Paul says you've got to realize that the that the ownership of this is on you. You've got to do it. You've got to be obedient. And so it's, it is no stretch for me to look at you tonight and say that God is absolutely sovereign over this church, over your family, over your children, over your children's lives. God is absolutely sovereign. And God knows the hearts of your children. God knows your heart. And the fact of the matter is, is that you are being called, just like we sang this morning, to simply trust and obey. And if you're a parent, you're being called to shepherd and guide and guard your child's heart. And yet God knows their ways. He knows their paths. It's mind-boggling to us. How can, God, how can you know my child's future and yet you're saying it's dependent on me? Do I really have a choice in the matter? Because you already know it. Like we, like we start thinking about it and it just leads us to madness. We just get, end up in this endless cycle of questions. Notice the, the writers in Scripture really don't struggle with it like we do. And I think that's, that should be a testimony to us that it's not the Bible saying... Well, don't think too hard about all this because it really won't make sense if you think too hard about it. It's not that. Don't, don't ever be afraid to devote thought to Scripture. What it's saying is, humble yourself before God's majesty and mystery. But know that He's good. And so, Israel, First Baptist Abbeville, repent. Repent. Because God's promises and God's kingdom are at stake. That's what He's saying. And that's His entire ministry. The returned exiles, they hear him, and they respond positively through Zechariah, and they, they repent, they humble themselves before God, or so it seems. And that's where you get into this crazy section. And so if you've got your, um, your, uh, your handout, take a look at it, because this is where you're going to see the beauty of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. And I'm not asking you to read, because I know these words are really small in here. I just want you to see the way it, it's laid out. Okay, So you see this section right here, you, at the, the bottom left of the page, you've got these four kind of cloud-looking things, and they're separated by a little banner uh, in the middle. And so what, the, what he's showing us is that, like with a lot of Hebrew poetry, there's symmetry to Zechariah's visions. We read them. I mean, if you ever read through the Bible in a year or do, or do a Bible reading plan or something like that, you read them and you don't see the symmetry. And so that's why it really helps to have something visual before you. And so we're going to walk through each one of these because these visions and dreams in Zechariah are paired. Okay? And so let's go, let's go through the first pair, which is the first dream and the eighth dream. They pair up together like that. And so the first dream is found in chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, which is kind of where we are uh, in the text. And this one's kind of a funny one. I'm just going to read these to you, okay? Because you need to know, these eight, these eight dreams are just that. They are dreams. They are nighttime visions that Zechariah occur, uh, had. And I don't know about your dreams, but my dreams are really, really weird sometimes. 
And Zechariah, his dreams were weird, but there was a clarity for him so that he could write these things down and these, uh, through these symbolic dreams and help us understand. So the first and last visions, the first and the eighth, are visions about four horsemen in each one of the visions. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf. And what this is, is it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. We think, well, God, do you really know what's going on in North Korea? Do you really know what's going on in Iran? Do you really know what's going on uh, in, in the nations of Europe? Do you really what, what, know what's going on in the Muslim world? Do you really know what's going on? I mean, are you aware of these things? And God says, yes, I'm absolutely aware. And so that Zechariah can understand that. He gives him these visions of these horsemen. And they patrol around, and in the first vision, the report is that the world is at peace because God raised up the people of Persia to conquer Babylon. Remember, Babylon was just horrible. They were just horrible people. And so, in conquering Babylon, Persia had brought peace to the world. And so the question arises, the 70 years of exile were almost up, so is now the time for this messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that He is determined to fulfill those promises, but the question of timing is unanswered. The question of timing is unanswered. So that even so, just let's let's stop for a moment and think about what we just heard. Okay, so God's got a timetable, but He's not that willing to share it with us. And guess what, folks? That's still the case. Okay, God's got a timetable in terms of what's going to happen for the end times, but he's not sharing it with anybody. And so be careful as you're clicking through, right, the TV, and you get to the preachers who've got the really fancy diagrams, right, and they've got some dates, and they've got some maybe some astrological signs or some, you know, I mean, I, I know blood moons was a big deal a couple years ago, and it just, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying everything they say is wrong. I'm just saying be careful. Because it's pretty, it's pretty safe that if Jesus himself didn't know the day and time of his return, then no mortal man is going to either. And so God is going to fulfill his promises, but the question of timing is not one that he is committed to answer for us. And so that's the first and the eighth vision they pair together. But the second and seventh vision, go to the next little uh, pillar cloud thing looking there. This, this is where it gets really, I mean, if you had a dream like this, you would call me and you'd be like, ah, this scares me to death. Okay, so the second and the seventh, seventh visions are paired because they both look back on Israel's past sin that led to the exile. The second vision is about horns that symbolize nations that attacked Israel and scattered them. But get this, but then these horns or empires, right? Assyria, Babylon, these different things. Uh, these horns or, or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths. Like, that's, that's an interesting uh, one. And the blacksmiths are an image of Persia. And then it goes to the seventh dream about, a, this is really funny, about a woman in a basket who is carried off by other women with wings, right? I think I might have actually had that dream before. Um, and, uh, and they are a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. The woman is carried off into Babylon by these, by these other women. And so, these second and seventh dreams are about Israel's past sin and exile. Okay, third and sixth. Third and sixth dreams. The third and the sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of the new Jerusalem. Uh, a man is measuring the city. He's got a plumb line. And this is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. He's got this plumb line and he's measuring uh, the city. 
which is an image of God's promise that Jerusalem Jerusalem will be rebuilt and will become a beacon of the nations to join God's people together in worship. And so Jerusalem will be rebuilt. I think this is probably my favorite one. The sixth dream shows us that this new Jerusalem, right, this new Jerusalem is different, that it's heavenly. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual new Jerusalem. Because look at what happens in, in the sixth uh, vision, if you see the number six down there. The sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. So, like, just imagine for a second. Zechariah is having this vision, and the vision is of this, this, this scroll, this, like, cylindrical piece of paper flying around and engulfing thieves and liars and, like, taking them away, like the, like the monkey, flying monkeys on the Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, they're, they're just taking them away. And this brings the idea that the New Jerusalem is a kingdom characterized by purification of sin by the Scriptures. That's what Zechariah is seeing. He's saying this new Jerusalem is going to be built. And when it's built, it's, going to be, it's not going to be populated with thieves and liars and murderers. And think of 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation chapter 21. It's not going to be populated by people like that, but it's going to be populated by people who have been purified because the Word of God has been written on their hearts. Does that sound familiar? From Ezekiel chapter 36, Jeremiah chapter 31. The prophets declaring a unified message that this is what the future is going to look like for the people of God. And so we've had 1, 8, 2, 7, 3, 6, and now we have 4, 5, which are the center of these visions. And they both testify about uh, the two key leaders among the, the returned exiles. Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. You see, Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes. This is Zechariah's dream. But then those are taken off, and they are given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. Remember Philip's sermon last week, Ezekiel chapter 36, when, it, when, when God says, I will take your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be cleansed from your iniquities. Right? Uh, Joshua wearing dirty clothes as a representation of Israel's sin, God saying, I'm going to remove that sin. I'm going to pour out my grace on you. I'm going to forgive you. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, then he will lead his people and he will become a symbol of the future Messianic king. Which, if you remember, we said that Joshua in New Testament Greek translates to Jesus. And so the other vision in, uh, in uh, the fifth vision is about two olive trees that provide oil for this elaborate oil lamp, which is symbolic of God's watchful eye over his people. The two trees symbolize two anointed elders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are leading temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it is the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's Spirit. And then we get this bonus vision, right? Uh, This bonus vision in uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And what happens here is that uh, it's Joshua the high priest who's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah who will also be priest over God's kingdom. So I think this is extremely relevant because we've mentioned that the naming here, it's almost like God's doing a play on words. That there is a future high priest, king, crowned, wearing pure clothes, who is named Joshua or Yeshua or 
Jesus, which translates to God saves, right, in Hebrew. And he is going to be crowned. And, he, and, and Zechariah, once again, challenges the, uh, the people and the priests by saying that the only way all these things will happen is if these people are faithful and fulfill these covenant obligations before God. And so the last three visions, they collaborate to emphasize how the coming of the Messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams in chapter 7 and 8. And it's this really interesting picture. You look kind of in the middle, right, right below the title, Zechariah. Uh, it's these people who come to, uh, come to Zechariah and they say, um, they say, is it time to stop grieving over the destruction of Jerusalem? Is God's kingdom coming? Very much like Jesus' disciples were asking there in the, in the New Testament. And Zechariah reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets. So he just challenges them. He says, this generation will see the Messianic kingdom if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to, to the covenant. So you see why we began the way that we did. Zechariah's ministry is about this tension between God's sovereignty to fulfill His purposes and your responsibility to be obedient. Your responsibility to respond to the call of God. If the, the prophets look at us and say, if you don't respond, it's not going to happen. And yet God sits on his, on his throne in perfect peace that His purposes are going to be fulfilled. And so Zechariah actually turns this question on them. And you see that right there at the bottom in the middle. It says the question is reversed. He looks at them, they say, should we stop grieving? He looks at them and says, let me ask you a question. Will you commit to become people who are ready to participate in God's coming kingdom? Sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? And so we have repentance, then we have dreams, and then the third word is Messiah. The third word is Messiah, and this is in chapters 9 through 11. Chapters 9 through 11 and 12 through 14 are basically different pictures of the Messiah. And remember I said this morning... That, and this, from an apologetic standpoint, if you ever want to point people to some really concrete prophecy that Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament, to point back to the fact that he was the Old Testament Messiah, and there's continuity in the purpose of God, Zechariah 9 through 11 and 12 through 14 both um, are great examples of this. So, these images of the Messianic kingdom, first of all, in chapters 9 and 10, in these chapters, get this. Zechariah tells them about the coming of a humble messianic king who is riding a donkey into Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. What do we call this date on the church calendar? Palm Sunday, right? Why did they react that way? When they saw Jesus, knowing that he had done all of these miracles knowing that he taught with authority. Why did they, when, when, I mean, why did Jesus send to get a donkey? He wants to give these people an indication that this is, that I am he, I am the Messiah. But taking a literal interpretation of Zechariah chapters 9 and 10, they lay down the palm branches and think he's about to put Rome underneath his feet. Why did James and John ask to sit at his right hand? Why did they continually think that this was a military deliverance that was coming, and that he was the Messiah who was coming with the sword and with fire? It's because they, they thought 
that Jerusalem in Zechariah 9 and 10 was the earthly Jerusalem when in fact it was something that, we, that in the Bible we call an already not yet. That Jesus is coming to fulfill this prophecy, but that it's prophecy that is in progress. Because there's a gap between when Jesus comes into, the, the, into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and people are laying down palm branches, there's a gap because it's during that time that the gospel was meant to go forth to the nations. And so they didn't have the, the ability to look at it in retrospect as we do. But that helps you understand why they, they, they proclaimed Him as the Messiah and why they expected a military deliverance. And so this Messiah is going to come on the back of a donkey, but he's going, chapter 11, he's going to be rejected by his own people. That's what chapter 11 tells us about. He will be rejected by his own people. He symbolized, this, this, uh, this king of Zechariah chapter 11 is symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel. Right? Jesus went to great lengths in John chapter, I think it was chapter 10, to call himself what? the great shepherd whose sheep know his voice. Well, if the leaders rejected him, then the leaders obviously didn't know his voice. They rejected him nonetheless, just like it was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. Therefore God gave them over to those Pharisees and scribes. And as God gave them over to these corrupt shepherds, the question that, that ends at uh, chapter 11 Will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? And that's where chapters 12 through 14 bring us the idea of complete restoration. And remember how this fits in with the four chapters of God's biblical narrative uh, of His story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So this is testifying to us of a future time. And these images of the Messianic kingdom is... Uh, they, they answer the above question about Israel's rejection, saying, no, it will not last forever. These visions depict a, a new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. This is a time where, where uh, there's been a recreation of this kingdom, this, this Jerusalem. It's very similar to these themes that we saw in Joel and Ezekiel, but God, it's where God is going to confront the rebellion in the hearts of His own people. He's going to pour out His Spirit on them so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they've rebelled and rejected their Messianic shepherd. And the final chapter, chapter 14, concludes with this new Jerusalem. It's a gathering point for all nations. So, so let's, let's just pause for a second. Let's make sure we got a grasp on where we're going. So God is going to do something in His people, physical Israel. We looked at that when we were studying through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11 talks about a future time, from future from our time now, where it literally says, talking about physical Israel, that all Israel will be saved. They will return to their Savior. They will no longer reject Him because God will pour out His Spirit upon them and they will see Jesus for who He really is. This is why we had, uh, y'all remember last year, we had Jews for Jesus in here, right? Well, we love that ministry because what are they doing? They're seeking, I know it was a tough experience for some of you guys, uh, they, were, they were seeking to, they were seeking to bring, they, they are seeking to bring about this revival among the Jews, among the physical Jews of this earth. And yet God is doing a work in the meantime, this is what Romans 9 through 11 is about, this is what God's doing a work in the meantime among the Gentiles, praise God, that's us, 
And so he is, Ephesians chapter 2, God is making one new man out of the two. He's, he's, he's joining together these two nations, the Israelites and the Gentiles, to make one new body. And that new body, is gonna, they're going to be agents of restoration among the nations. They're already going to be bringing God's kingdom, but one day God's kingdom will come in its fullness. And that will be the new Jerusalem, where God fully and finally pours out His Spirit and purifies us from all iniquity. He, he takes all of our sin, removes it from us, the, the presence of our sin. He's already delivered us from the power and the penalty of our sin. Now we'll be delivered from the presence of our sin. And we will worship Him as our great shepherd for all eternity. And there will be no evil there. There will be only peace. There will be no injustice there. There will be only be harmony. And that's why the final chapter, chapter 14, concludes with this new Jerusalem being the gathering point for all nations. Just like Revelation chapter 4, 5, and 7, where every tribe and tongue is before the throne of God. Doing what? In one voice, contrary to the Tower of Babel where there's many voices, but in one voice saying, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And in that city, there's a new Garden of Eden because God is restoring and recreating. And there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple bringing healing to all creation. And so here's the, here's the, here's the beauty of this. This idea of this already, not yet. We are already the kingdom of God present on this earth, advancing. We already are the new Jerusalem filled with God's Spirit, going and being agents of restoration of the nation. We already are the people who have living water, just like John to, uh, Jesus uh, uh, told the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. We already are the people with rivers of living water flowing out of us, right? So that people can taste of the goodness and loving kindness and the character of God. We already are those people, and we are called to be faithful to overflow that gospel witness, pointing people to Jesus Christ, pointing people to the need for salvation by faith through the Spirit, pointing people to the need for repentance so that they can become one, reunited with their Father. And in that way, as salt and light, we see this culture, this community, we see nations change, we see people change. The only way that real change happens, and that's through heart change, heart transformation. And the church grows and grows and grows and faces intense persecution, and one day the end will come. And like I told you a couple weeks ago, I don't have uh, a defined eschatology about you know, the tribulation and the rapture and all these different kinds of things. I just know Jesus is coming back, and I know what we've been called to do, right? And so I don't really have a tension there. I just say that that's the way it's supposed to be. We are the first fruits, the foretaste of this new Jerusalem, a church made up of all nations with a river of life flowing out of us. And so Zechariah doesn't offer us a nice, neat, little, concise, uh, extremely clear, um, kind of orderly vision about this kingdom, about the Messiah, about what's happening. It's all uh, kind of uh, encased in this symbolism of these dreams. But the... the um, the point is clear. Is that, yes, God is guiding history towards His own purposes. 
But ultimately, ultimately, the promises of God call us, they invite us to look above and beyond the chaos and hope for God's coming kingdom that we are called to be a part of right now and we're called to be faithful in it. And to ensure that, God's put His Spirit inside of us. And so that's how I want to end tonight, as we've seen just continuously, I've mentioned it over and over and over again, this idea of God's Spirit, of God's Spirit. And uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you're like me when I was younger, and uh, whenever I thought of being filled with the Holy Spirit, I thought, that's never happened to me because I've never spoken in tongues and I've never like danced around the church and... I had a very, uh, a very wrong view of what it means to be filled with the Spirit when I was younger, a younger Christian. But it's very evident that not only is the Spirit of God important for believers, but it's promised for believers, and it is absolutely essential to doing the work of God. And so, I, I, just want, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I just want to ask you, just just by way of, of drawing us to a close, what is your understanding of walking in the Spirit? Of walking, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those two terms are synonymous. Walking in the Spirit, walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. What's your understanding of that? And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about g- give me a doctrinal explanation. I'm talking about give me a practical explanation. What does that look like for you on a daily basis? What does it look like you uh, look like for you to, to to read about the Spirit of God coming upon people, like in the book of Judges, like Basilil when he was gifted to make the tabernacle, the Spirit of God was upon him, and then the new covenant clarification coming in Jeremiah about the Spirit being the key to knowing God. Ezekiel chapter 36, the Spirit being the key to uh, sanctification and to, um, uh, to walking in holiness. Does your life, does your life testify to a right belief about the fullness of the Holy Spirit? We can look at Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk on, drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, let me ask you this. Has God put a song in your heart? Do you live with joy? Is there, are, are, you, a, are you a person who is characterized by living for the benefit of others? Do you genuinely care about others and their well-being? I, I'm, when it says singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that doesn't mean you have to go around and like, as I greet Miss Debbie, I'm like, how are you today in the Lord? You know, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like that. But there, there is a, a, very real, um, a very real way in which Christians should speak to each other that even in how we ask about each other, how we talk to each other, that we lift up the truth of God's character. Even in, I mean, even in just the basic daily interactions. I, I, I joke with people. I said it to a lady at the gas station the other day. 
that, and she actually remembered years ago when I said it to her when she was a youth. I told her, I told her, I said, if you sing in the shower in the morning, then you'll have a better day. And I don't mean just sing any songs. I mean, take some of these hymns, take some of these songs that we sing on a Sunday morning and sing with all your heart. Sing loud. And don't care about who hears you. And you may not be a singer, right? But that's not the point, is being a singer. It's about what song are you singing in your heart? See, the Spirit of God wants to put a new song in your heart, wants to put joy in your heart. Because if you have joy in here, guess what? You'll have joy around you. You will be a person who has that stream of living water of joy flowing out of you. You'll be a person who has the truth of God on your mind in such a way, not that you're, not that you're once again, you know, just going and trying to answer every question with a Bible verse, but you're a person who abides in the truth and overflows the truth and has wisdom about how to, how to use the truth, how the, how the truth makes a difference in drawing clear lines in different situations. These are the characteristics of walking in the Spirit, and you can't live life by God's design without Him. And so what I want us to do is I just want us to take a few moments, and it's going to be awkward because I'm not, not going to get Philip or Debbie to come and play. It's just going to be quiet. Because sometimes it's in those very, very quiet moments <clears throat> that we can really focus. And so as best as you can, I want you to take the next few moments and I want you to ask yourself these questions personally. Evaluate your, your week and then use that as a jumping off point to say, God, if these things aren't present in me right now, Lord, help me to be that kind of person this week. Because once again, it's all about hearing and heeding, reading and responding. There should never be a time in your life where God speaks and you don't say, yes, Lord. And so if God has spoken, telling you where to find hope, telling you what it means to walk in the Spirit, uh, calling you to repentance, calling you to be faithful where you are, you need the Spirit of God to do just that. And so take a few moments and call upon the Lord and talk to Him about your relationship, your practical relationship in walking in the Spirit. And I'll close this in prayer in a few moments.